0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is novelist and memoirist Paul Lissicki. His latest memoir is called The Narrow Door, which focuses on a time of much loss in his life. Within the same year, Lissicki's marriage to his partner, an accomplished poet, ended and his mother and his good friend Denise both died. The memoir is a portrait of love and loss, separation, and the frailty that exists in this life, both personally and environmentally. We began the interview talking about the memoir's title, The Narrow Door.
1: Um, The title was Pure Accident. I um, was on Nantucket with um, my soon-to-be ex and feeling at a low point. Um, around the circumstances of our relationship, and I don't know what um, propelled me to walk into a church on a Sunday morning. I was walking by myself, and very close to the beginning of the Mass, the priest said, you who lead us to salvation through the narrow door, I might be misquoting, but it's something like that. And instantly I knew that that was the title of the book, and it said a lot about how I felt at the moment because I guess I must have felt psychically squeezed on a number of levels, but I also sensed that I wasn't going to be in that position forever, that there was something else on the other side of, of that narrowness. So um, I never gave the title very much thought. It just seemed to me metaphorically right on an intuitive level. And um, I've since learned that that metaphor comes from a line in scripture, and I can't even quote the particular line, but reviewers have been noting it and thinking about it. But the book is essentially about a difficult passage. You know, I lost my mom, um, my best friend, Denise, and uh, my sixteen year long relationship, in a matter of about sixteen months. and I don't think those passages are extremely unusual in in every life. I think everyone goes through these periods. and that that title just seemed really apt to me.
0: I noticed that there were times, it was more towards the end of the memoir where you did go to church. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. about faith. This book is so much about loss, as you mentioned, your mother, your friend, your relationship, that death weighs heavy. What role does faith play in your life or did it before this sense of loss? I
1: think my own spirituality is... Cobbled together from so many sources, and I think I was reaching for church at that point because it was the most available to me. It was it was familiar to me. It was the landscape of my of my childhood. I I'd grown up Catholic in a fairly um, liberal congregation and played m- music in church as a kid, and I think in part just. Going occasionally to church was about, you know, reaching towards some old touchstone that that felt like home to me.
0: And I should say, just because you went, doesn't mean you had faith. It might have just given given you a sort of comfort. You know, I'm not assuming. It,
1: it gave me sort of comfort, and um, it also was a relief to be anonymous in a crowd that, or a group of people that felt communal. I mean, to me, there was something really lovely about being able to say texts and to sing songs and antiphons. It was a moment when I felt terrifically alone and needed to be around people, but I, 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 I didn't necessarily need to talk to lots of people. It was just, it was just, I needed to be physically close, like to stand side by side with a group of people in a contained space.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Paul Lissicchi, author of the memoir, The Narrow Door. So in this book, the main sections are about your relationship with your ex and your good friend Denise, who is also a writer. But then you have uh, other sections that comment on something cultural or cultural. Or artistic. Right. You have sections about Joni Mitchell, an oil spill, Katrina, tsunamis. Can you talk about folding those things in and what that meant to you?
1: I was writing out of a, a, a pretty raw place. I started the book very close to Denise's death, and I just had this hunger or urgency to, to keep her around on the page. I wanted to think about her gestures and you know, the depths of her laugh and her silliness and sense of joy. And so I was essentially writing what I think of as iconic moments um, that represented our friendship to me. And there was, you know, there was some solace in that writing, but at the same time, I realized in that writing that she was gone, and that made me sick. So I would be in the memory and I'd need to step aside. And that's how the volcano stuff arose because I was avoiding writing by watching footage of volcanoes on YouTube. And then I would have enough of that and go back in to another memory. So there seemed to be a kind of physics or some some kind of energy was happening between the looking straight ahead at the problem, the predicament, the death, and then looking at it through another angle. <clears throat> and it was also a time when um, I felt really attuned to disaster around us, not just, you know, disaster on the other side of the world, but you know disaster close by. I think we sort of hold this myth that, you know, disaster isn't part of every... Day life, but we know it's probably happening in the house across the street behind closed doors, or happening in the high tension lines running behind our neighborhoods, or whatever. So, um, I I just felt like um, my my borders were sort of abraded, and and all that stuff came in, and then you know, and then there was. The Gulf oil spill, which just felt so searing to me, because I had just been down to Florida a few weeks ago um, before that started, and had this amazing time at, um, at you know a, a wildlife center near Punta Gorda on the on the west coast of Florida, and just the thought of all of that oil slopping that preserve destroying all those beaches, killing dolphins and pelicans for years to come just felt devastating. And it felt interrelated with, you know, the stuff of illness at the center of the book. You know, not just like a metaphorical representation of illness, but, huh, how do we stay healthy in a, in a world that that doesn't feel healthy, right? It's, it's not necessarily the world out there anymore. It's, the, the the border between our home lives and you know disasters is 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 not discrete or separate anymore. I just felt that on an intuitive level.
0: So in, in this book, you know, because you're going through so much, although maybe it's the human condition anyway, I felt, you know, there's a lot of times when you're really communicating your loneliness. Um in one page you wrote I'm the only person in the room whose needs might be greater than hers when you were talking about Denise. (laughs) And another time you said, we want to look popular. We want to seem loved and we want to love back. Can you talk a little bit about uh, writing these and being that um, raw and vulnerable in your your book?
1: I just assume that everyone is lonely (laughs) on a certain level and Some people do a better job of disguising it. You know, some people need to perform their friendships publicly so they're not known as lonely. But, you know, finally, we're, you know, estranged beings who, you know, can even feel estranged from the people closest to us. I just think that's that's what it is to be human. And some of us do a better job of, of navigating that position. Maybe it's it's hard for some to to admit to how lonely we are, but I don't think it's necessarily, you know, an a, a point of despair. There can be something beautiful in recognizing your own borders and and recognizing what you have, you know, and experiencing your own perception, your own interrelationship with the world, what you love. That's not governed or influenced by what other people love. I think so many of us are, you know, instructed to be in a couple, to be a part of the popular group all our lives. It doesn't stop, and we presume that this just just happens in high school, but it, it really never stops. And it's, you know, some of my happiest times honestly have been driving somewhere in the winter to a beach and, you know, walking down a deserted beach for an hour and looking at the waves and seeing what washes up and, you know, thinking about the contour of the dunes. That, that feels, like, feels like a real gift if we can be that engaged with what's around us but, you know, not feel you know, terrific need or absence in ourselves.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Paul Lissicki, author of the memoir, The Narrow Door. Well, I wanted to ask you about the loss that preceded you in a way in, in your life, in the sense that you're named for your mother's twin brother who died right? and you had this really long relationship with your partner whose previous partner had died and cast seemed to cast a pall over his life can you
1: talk about that yeah that's i'm so that's really astute of you to point out those connections because not everyone has seen them and i think I I really think that's central. That that echo, that correspondence is really central into the emotional wiring of the book. Um, I grew up, and I only figured this out fairly recently—not even in therapy, but on my own, talking to a friend—that I was raised to be a twin. You know, my mom's brother, twin brother, died in a car accident beside her when they were seventeen, and. That loss um, just haunted her life, and um, so she she named me for him. And I, I think on a number of levels, and I've written about this in other books. I I think my mom raised me as you know her lost half, and I was always conscious of this other lost. Soul who was pretty purified in memory, who was a myth, who you know couldn't really do anything wrong. Every, you know, all, the few stories I had about Paul were stories in which he was just absolutely perfected. And you know, I think that's what we often do when we lose someone we love. But I, I think I had a strong sense of inadequacy in relationship to my mother's myth. You know I couldn't really live up to you know, Paul's level of love and glory because I was a fallible boy just struggling to be myself. And you know my mom loved me, I don't want to say to simplify a story, but I was aware of walking in the steps of a beautiful ghost. So, you know, when Mark and I got together, I'm sure that situation, the situation of following another beautiful ghost felt really, really familiar. It's a little bit uncanny and unsettling to say this, to name this in retrospect. But I think that's how we are drawn to the people we love, because there's some kind of template in our past. I'm not saying anything Profound or unusual or unknown here, but we might not know what we're doing until you know until we have the perspective of some years, yeah, I mean it was interesting to to think about mark's work and you know, the, the beautiful pieces about Wally and the loss of Wally and to accompany him on readings and you know, hear how people responded to that work. That work meant so much to people. I mean, he was writing those poems at a time when there was very little public, there was very little art about what it was like, the pain of what it was like to lose a sibling or a lover or a mother or father to AIDS. And that work gave incredible vehicles to people. I mean, you know, I I think on a certain level I really wanted to be, you know, as important to him as Wally was. Wally wasn't a ghost to me, by the way. I Wally and I were friends for a few years before Mark and I were together. Um I was I was a friend of both Mark and Wally's
0: there is a paragraph on page 159 that I read last night and uh, just started crying. And it's, oh. it's a story that's relayed to you. But it is your story. Your friend Denise is dying and she lives in an upper apartment and she's oh, trying yeah. to get up the floor up to her floor and she can't and she's crying so hard. That a neighbor comes out who she's never met and takes her upstairs, gets her some tea, was so moved by Denise's story. And this neighbor lived below her. She said, let's change apartments. You know, I I could live up there and you can live in my apartment. You won't have to climb the stairs. And it was like this kind offer in this moment of just such relief that human beings are good. And then she never heard from her
1: again. (laughs) I think we've all, well, I'm sure that woman um, had the best of intentions. and, And that offer was made at that moment out of, you know, just pure human regard. And then I'm sure she simply realized this was too much, you know, probably thought that she was giving up too much of herself. Maybe she simply looked around at her apartment and said, you know, that's a dear woman, but I love this space. (laughs) And I'm going to lose something if I move up to that upper floor. Yeah, I mean, at least Denise had that moment of, you know, camaraderie and care. And Denise wasn't embittered when the woman decided it wasn't a good idea. I think, on an intuitive level, she knew that she wouldn't be able to live on her own anymore. So, just a few weeks after that, her family helped her move to a one floor apartment that was, you know, a lot more practical than her usual apartments. I think it was sad for me to think about that lost apartment because. You know, it took her years to find a space that she truly, truly loved. And homemaking, the domestic life, was really important to her. And even though she was sick when she moved into that space, it was just so beautiful. It, it just, it just lit up with her spirit.
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting, too, about that interaction with that woman. And as you were saying, like, I think she meant it from the bottom of her heart. And she in that moment, she was pure. And one of the Mm -hmm. things that your book talks about is how there's so many versions of ourselves. So that was one version of that woman. And there are many versions of of Denise where she was jealous and then she was kind or she was succeeding or she wasn't. And I feel like your book also highlights that about how we go through life in, in your relationship, too, because in your relationship, you were struggling and you had a, a separation where your partner had someone else in his life during that time. Right. But it didn't mean he didn't also love you. So I felt like the exactly. what you were also saying in the book is how we are so not we, just how we have so many sides to ourselves that we, we exist. Have so many
1: sides. We're all full of. Good intentions, but we all realize we have to protect our. Sometimes we have to protect ourselves from our good intentions. If we were all good intentions, if we were all entirely selfless, what would we have left? And I'm I'm sure that that woman was too embarrassed to apologize. She probably sat up on her bed at night and thought, "What have I done?" I don't I don't really think that that was a callous act. And I, I think it's really generous of you to, to see that about the book.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Paul Lissicki, author of the memoir, The Narrow Door. In this memoir, as you were saying, you write about these losses, your relationship, your mother and your friend Denise, who takes up a lot of the real estate in the book, your relationship. You write about it a lot. And she is also a writer. And I found your relationship really interesting and complex because there was a lot under the surface. There was this love and this bond. But then underneath, there was also this competition and jealousy, which I want to get to, at least coming from her side. But one of the things that I noticed, and I don't know if it's just the evolution of your thinking, but I found that the Denise you described in the beginning of the book And then the Denise at the end, like I felt she had found so much grace and so much of her own sense of being able to be a more gracious person. I don't know if it's something that I just noticed or
1: you did too. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I don't think anyone else or any of the, the interviewers I've talked to have... Have commented on that, and I think that's really central to the trajectory of the book, the emotional trajectory. Um, I mean, I think by the end of the book, close to her death, I know her writing still mattered to her hugely. She had had, there was, there is an unpublished third novel that's quite beautiful, and she was working on a collection of essays about being ill. So writing. Writing still was important to her, but um, it didn't seem to be the the essence of her identity any longer. And I think as she realized that her time here was precarious and vulnerable, she she was really conscious of paying attention to the people she loved. And I know a lot of people in her own life with whom she'd had fallings out or breakages actually came back. In the last months of her life, to say goodbye. It's a, that's that seems to me a really beautiful story, and maybe it's it might be hard for some interviewers to talk about that because it sounds, you know, possibly I don't know a little a little too overly redemptive or something. I think there's a counterpoint late in the book between Denise's reconciliation with me and the breakup my breakup with my ex. So it's the latter parts of the book seem to move between this positive and negative charge. Those two things needed to sit side by side electrically. That's the best way I can put it.
0: So you and Denise met in the writing community, and you were both on your own journey of publishing and becoming your best writing selves but you also were really exposing these feelings that it seemed that she had to have of competition and jealousy if you had a success it didn't seem like she was happy for you and yet i right. don't really think of writing as a competitive sport but can you talk no. about this
1: yeah i mean i don't at all i mean i think for me competition I, i'm in competition with myself i mean i i don't want to repeat my same moves I don't want to be boring. I don't care about being the most famous person in the room. You know, it's enough for me to sit at the table and, you know, just the the vocation of trying to to make some kind of order out of my own talents and weaknesses is where most of my energy goes. And yet, I I feel like I've been in situations where um, I've been with people who... um, Conceive of the project of their work differently. And I don't mean to sound like, you know, my own approaches is, is superior or more highly evolved. I'm probably competitive in other aspects of my life that don't have to do with writing. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it was important for Denise. She really wanted to be very well known and had certain models. Her, you know, one of her former teachers, as an example of she, she, she wanted to be famous. She wanted to be, to have notoriety. Quite honestly, most of her competition with me was fairly submerged, and I think she was all as always as proud of me as she was unsettled by the fact that maybe my little achievement. Meant that she wasn't going to get an achievement. So, I think fairly early on, after a difficult reception to her second novel, she began to assume that, you know, her her time of promise was past. And it's, it, that's a that's a dangerous point to live from because I think once you once you take that in, you end up participating in the story.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Paul Lasicki, author of the memoir, The Narrow Door. So let's talk about your literary influences. Can you read a passage from an author that yeah. speaks to you or influenced you?
1: Oh, sure. I'd love to. Um, I have a passage from the writer Joy Williams, who's. Um New and Collected Stories, The Visiting Privilege, came out last year, um, and this is a passage from the story Escapes. Um, I don't think you need to know anything about the story, but this passage is one that I've never forgotten. I've known this story since 1990 when it came out, and it continues to be fresh to me. It was winter. My father had never ridden in the blue convertible, which my mother had bought after he had gone. The car was old then and was rusted here and there. Beneath the rubber mat on my side, the passenger side, part of the floor had rusted through completely. When we went anywhere in the car, I would sometimes lift up the mat so I could see the road rushing past beneath us and feel the cold, round air as it came up through the hole. I would pretend that the coldness was trying to speak to me in the same way that words written down tried to speak. The air wanted to tell me something, but I didn't care about it. That's what I thought. Outside, the car stood in the snow. That passage is not central to the narrative, which is largely about... um, a young girl's experience with her alcoholic mother, who happens to drag her to a magic show where the mother is humiliated on stage. But there's something so, so rich on a poetic level about that image. There's nothing about it is interpreted for us, and um, maybe that's why it resonates for me. So it's. Um, a moment of everydayness, but it seems to come out of dream life at, at the same time and does so much to capture the really attuned perception of a child, even though this is written as a retrospective story. It's written from the point of view of an adult woman looking back on this, on this unforgettable experience.
0: Can you share something that you wrote? It could be something that you found tricky or something that changed a lot. Yeah.
1: I mean, I could read um, something from fairly close to the beginning and um, to get a sense of my complicated life with, with my ex on the page. I mean, how does one do that in a way that feels, you know, compressed and efficient, but also complicated. So I I tried to get it all down in what I've been calling an emblematic moment. And so it's just two short paragraphs. 2008. It's the third afternoon of the summer writers conference. I've loosened up enough to admit that I dislike the room they've given m and me. There's no sunlight, And for several hours every afternoon, the family next door turns on the TV as the kids run in and out through the orange trees out back, shrieking. It feels transgressive to say, I don't like this place. I don't like this muggy, dark room, as this gig is especially prestigious. I might be violating some pact between us about making the best of our lot. Am I complaining? The look of confusion registers in M's blue eyes before it's gone. M yawns and stretches sitting up from his nap. M is a poet six years older than I am. We've been in each other's life 17 years now, four as friends, 13 as lovers. For years, I've traveled with him to readings and conferences where every so often I'm asked to read and teach too. It's not always easy to be away from home so much, to be open and friendly to strangers when you're feeling tired and shy and not terribly strong, but I love this life. I'm so much inside my life with M that it's hard for me to see it, name it as much as I pretend to. I don't even mind the psychic challenge of it. This morning, it was the administrator who laughed derisively at my name as she admitted to misspelling it on a poster. It is enough to be with M, really. To watch him reading a book, his brow intent enmeshed in thought, beautiful thought, clear eyes moving from left margin to right, a smile breaking light into his face. I am safe, fully myself in his presence. And that's not anything I've ever felt into my blood before. A lot going on in, you know, 20 sentences. Um, yeah, I mean, if I had told that in a more straightforward narrative way, you know, that could have filled chapters. So that was the challenge there, how to how to get a lot of emotional information down, to get polarities and contradictions down, love, as well as intimations of trouble, you know, in two paragraphs.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write all over the place. I certainly have a desk in my apartment, but I'm only likely to go to the desk after something is well underway. I'm likely to write on trains and planes. Sometimes my best work happens from standing in line at a coffee place, I'll pull out, I'll get an idea, I'll pull out a phone, and, you know, I, I get three sentences. And those three sentences aren't usually finished by any means, but something good happens, for, usually something good happens for me when I'm not putting the lights of pressure on creation. So, yeah, the work's origins are often happen in the most unlikely spots.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I'm not sure I ever get away from it, um, which sounds like a terrible thing to admit to, but I guess I think of uh, um, maybe the difficulty of writing is not, it, it doesn't feel like an adversary to my dailyness. So, you know, it's often the case, as I've just said, the, the, the best the, the best sentences, the originating sentences will come to me when I'm I'm walking, when I'm not at my desk, when, you know, I'm attuned to my body and to my breathing patterns and you know, the brain isn't overworking.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I used to show all of my work, everything, to my ex, but lately a lot of it, this is like breaking some cardinal rule, I think. I often don't show it, sh- small pieces, to anyone. Someone, I mean, I just did a piece for The Atlantic and I sent it to them cold. I send full manuscripts that are pretty close to being finished to my good, good friend, my dear friend, Elizabeth McCracken, who's another writer. We went to grad school together and we've been best pals for since like, you know, 1991 or so. It's not before that. So, yeah, I don't really have anyone giving me so much advice the way I used to.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: You know, rejection always hurts. I mean, there are those who say you have to develop a thick skin, and I don't think, I don't know, that seems too simple. I don't think writers create out of thick skin. I think that would harm your work. I, I've always just tried my best to get the work out there as soon as I can. I mean, it's usually the case that rejection is not always It's often not about the quality of the work at a certain level, but about the fact that your particular piece or book does not align with an editor's plan for a particular season of books or a particular magazine issue. I mean, all of that stuff is up against anything we write, practical stuff, business stuff.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Um, This sounds corny, but I think it could be joy. You know, joy is, joy is rare. It's up against despair. It's, it's not something we feel all the time, but, you know, that, that's, that experience of joy feels like a visitation of sorts to me. It's not the same thing as happiness. I mean, happiness can feel complacent or smug, but I think joy sort of implies or infers you know, disappointment and darkness and despair. And, you know, sometimes we get those little lights.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Paul Lisicki, author of the memoir, The Narrow Door. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.